The title of my message this morning is very simple, it's the light of the world, and uh, I'll be coming from John chapter 8 this morning, and so if you'll join me there, John chapter 8 is where we're going to camp out, and uh, I believe, if I'm not wrong, I think, Robbie, do we have a picture that Emily loaded for me earlier? Um, I was in Barnes and Noble yesterday, before we jump into the sermon, this is just kind of an aside, I was in Barnes and Noble yesterday with the kids, and we are in the kids section and uh, we're walking through looking at the books, and you know, I'm a kid at heart, and I love looking at all the kids' books and everything, and I could sit in there for hours, you know, and just look at the different ones that I remember reading as a kid. Uh, and some of you, I see some nudges and some points and things like this. So I'm walking through the kids' section, and I notice this little biographical thing that says, meet these fascinating figures. And the first one that catches my eye is on the top left. And it's this guy that we picture with a beard and long hair and brown eyes, you know. And, and who was Jesus? And, of course, they, you know, nice little compliment with the dove there. Uh, and then who was Walt Disney? And who is Stan Lee, a comic book writer? And who is Stevie Wonder? <laughs> and then who is Bruce Springsteen? And who is J.K. Rowling, an author of children's books? And I understand, you know, they're, kinda, they're just going for the biographical side of who Jesus was. But this entire sermon series that, I'm, that we're working our way through, these I am statements of Jesus, um, I really feel like if there's anybody in there that does not belong, you remember those kind of kids, which one does not belong? It would be the guy on the top left, because some of the things he said about himself would completely put him in an entirely different bookstore than the others and where they belong. And uh, I just found that kind of humorous. So I took a picture, and I'm sure people were wondering, what is he doing? And I sent it to Emily, and I thought, I've got to use this, uh, you know, last second on the fly here, because it really does tie into what we are talking about with this series uh, called I Am. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? And what did he say about himself? And most importantly, if all of that is true, how should you and I respond? That's the question we come to this morning. And so today we're going to look at this second I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Where Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. And as we walk through John 8, we're only going to, again, look at primarily one verse, verse 12. We'll talk about some of the context around it that really sets the table for what Jesus says here. But I want to set before you three great truths that are packed into this one simple metaphor that tells us about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. I want to, before we do that, though, ask a very simple question by way of introduction to the topic of light. How important is light in your life? How important is light? How vital is it to our existence? So Nathan helped me do some research this week on the sun. And we see the sun coming in here this morning. If we did not have any electricity, we'd be okay right now, at least, because we have the sun. So I learned some fascinating facts about this glowing ball of gas that we call the sun. First off, it has a diameter of roughly 870,000 miles. That's almost 110 times the diameter of the planet we are on this morning. And here's what that means. Almost one million Earths, or about one million planet Earths, could fit comfortably inside the diameter of the sun. The sun also serves as the starting point for your food chain. So let's say you're going to leave here, and you're going to go have a hamburger and fries at one of your favorite restaurants. When you think about that hamburger, you think about the fries, you think about even the Coke, 
all of it came from the sun. You say, well, how does that work? Well, let's take the hamburger, for example, the bun. Some of you say, I wrap mine in lettuce. That's another topic for another day. All right? I'm going with the bun this morning. But the bread and the buns made of flour. Where does flour ultimately come from? Trace it all the way back. Comes from plants. The beef came from cows. What do they eat and recycle through their stomach multiple times? Plants, grass. The lettuce, the onions, the tomatoes come from plants. The fries are potatoes, which are plants. If you had a Coke with it, where did the sugar in the Coke come from? A plant. So what you realize is that the ultimate source of all food is what? Plants. So how do plants make their own food? Somebody's got to feed the plant. I've never seen anybody outside spoon feeding a little bush. So what do the plants do? Well, they use a process we learn about in elementary school called what? Photo. You guys are good, man. Photosynthesis. All right, so photosynthesis means to make food from sunlight. So a plant makes its own food because the sun is providing light, which there's a process in there that just naturally happens. And so the plants need the sun to give them light, and we need the plants to give us food ultimately where they come from. And so the point I'm trying to make this morning is how important the sun is to our existence. The sun also provides vitamin D. If you like whole milk, then you probably get plenty of that. But vitamin D helps us absorb calcium, which helps strengthen our bones and our tooth enamel. Now, I learned something about calcium that was fascinating. Calcium also helps with muscle contraction. So when you're in the gym lifting, you need calcium to help with that. But it also helps with nerve function. So calcium helps you every time you smell or you see or you touch or you taste or you hear. All of your five senses that you interact with your world They are assisted by nerve function, which is assisted by vitamin D, which comes from light. And so every process on planet Earth needs the sun to keep doing what it does. Basically, without the sun, here's where we stand. We would be a lifeless ball of ice-coated rock. That's all that we would be without this sun in the sky. It is vital to every process that God put in play. Why do I go into all this trouble? Here's why. For Jesus to say that he is the light, not a light, not one of many, for him to say, I am the light of the world, of the cosmos, then here's what he's doing. He's making a spiritual claim about himself and our desperate need for him, spiritually speaking, that is on par with how much we need the sun. Okay? I'm kind of bringing that down so we can see what exactly Jesus is saying. What did his statement mean? Why did he pick light? And like I said earlier, if he's right, then how do we appropriately respond? Well, part of the answer is that light is a key theme in Scripture. God describes himself as light. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no what? No darkness at all. So for Jesus to say... I am the light of the world. He's putting himself on par, on equal footing with God. And like we said last week, the original audience that heard Jesus say these things, they weren't confused about what he meant. There was no double speak. They all understood that he just said that he was God. Okay, But let's go to the background of John chapter 7 because we're going to narrow in and look at the background of John 7 even though we're in John 8. Eight, because it gives us a clue as to what this metaphor really means. 
For religious Jews, there were seven annual feasts in the calendar year. Seven feasts. Sorry, I had to count my fingers and figure out which one was seven. Seven feasts. The last one of the feasts was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was observed kind of October, November, a little before where we are right now. And one of the things the Jews would do was construct these temporary booths, these tabernacles that they would live in for an entire week. They were out of their homes living in these temporary shelters, and it reminded them of how God provided for them in the wilderness wandering. So during this week-long feast, at nighttime, there was these, these huge, monstrous uh, golden candelabras, four of them. Some scholars say two, but most that I read this past week said there are four enormous golden candelabras. So picture these four flags up front as the golden candelabras. And at nighttime, what they would do was in the court of the women, which was on the temple grounds, the leaders would light these golden candelabras. And it was a wonderful time of celebration and excitement for these Jews as they celebrated the end of this wonderful feast. And when they would light these candelabras, it is said that it was so bright there at the temple that every single courtyard in the entire city of Jerusalem was lit up by the lighting of these four candles. And it was here that Jesus stands, right here. Against this backdrop of all this light lighting up this entire city that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John Phillips says this, A glory and a light far greater than the one that shone in that first temple during that celebration, a light far greater, a glory far greater, was now here. So Jesus was saying, you see all this light coming from these candelabras. You see its effect in the city of Jerusalem. But I, I am, ego me, the light of the world. Now I want to um, ask you to go with me down a rabbit trail for just a second. And I promise it ties into what we're talking about. But this section at the end of John chapter 7, if you have a New American Standard, an English Standard Version, an NIV, maybe some of the other uh, recent modern translations, say within the last 100, 150 years, you're going to see perhaps above chapter 8 a little bracket that might say something like mine does. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 8. 11. Now, what was that story about in 753 through 811? It was one of the most well-known stories that we uh, grew up hearing about as children and teenagers, the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember, Jesus bends down and he writes in the dust and the throw in the stone and the older people leave and then finally the younger people begin to leave. So the reason I want to address this just for a moment is it does affect the flow of events in the Gospel of John and how you see the background connecting to what Jesus actually said. So let me give you uh, the most conservative scholars that I read and studied this past week what they said about how this section fits in. Essentially, this section, most scholars do not believe that this section, uh, 753 through 811, was original to the Gospel of John, that perhaps it was added later as hand copies were made and copies were made of copies and copies were made of copies. Let me tell you why scholars believe that. Because, essentially, the vocabulary and the style of that section do not match the rest of the Gospel. So if I was going to write a story and you were going to write one part of it, somebody is likely going to notice the difference between the style, between the vocabulary, the formation of the sentences. Secondly, the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts do not include this part 
in John's gospel. Third, none of the early church fathers even commented on this section until the 12th century. So 1,100 years pass after Jesus uh, does everything that he does on earth, dies, buries, resurrected, ascended, all of that, 1,100 years pass on it before the Greek church fathers even comment on this section. And so this section, most likely, in my view at least, was not part of the original text. But, but, it was most definitely a real historical event. It was most definitely not contradictory with the rest of Scripture. It is authentic to Jesus' life, and it is very consistent with the picture of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. So if you have a New American Standard, if you have an ESV, an NIV, if you have any of those, uh, you'll see around this text some brackets. And the reason is, is because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that were discovered, say, back in the 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Caves of Qumran, all of that do not include this in this section. So you say, okay, I have a King James in my hand. What does that mean? Here's what that means. The Greek text that was used to translate the King James in the 1600 was called the Textus Receptus. You can go look that up and, and kind of chase that rabbit later. But essentially, they were using the most reliable manuscripts that they had at that time to translate into the 1611 King James that's been edited uh, since that time. And so I'm not saying the King James is not a viable translation. What I am saying is later on, there were, uh, there were some discoveries made Later on, there were some discoveries made that helped us understand what earlier manuscripts were saying about this section. And say, why, why do you bring all that in? Let me explain why. Let me pull everybody back in because that was a little uh, rabbit trail scientific. Here's why. Because this section seems to interrupt the flow of events from John 7 all the way through to John chapter 8. It's kind of like this little island in what's going on. So if you go back to John chapter 7, you'll see Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, and everything he's saying is doing is taking place at this feast. Then you have this other section. What do we do with it? Some people, some scholars say it belongs at the end of the Gospels, that Jesus did this event with this lady one week prior to uh, his passion and when he was put on the cross. The only reason I bring that out is because I feel it is important for us to realize that when that section is included in there, if we see that as chronologically a part of the story, it breaks up the flow between the background at the feast, the lamplighting ceremony, and Jesus' statement. Okay, it's, it's not a major issue whether you think it belongs or whether you think it doesn't. It doesn't affect theology. It doesn't change our picture of who Christ is. It doesn't affect our copies of Scripture. What I'm saying is this, the big thing we need to know is Jesus picked what we might call primetime TV. If there were media outlets, if there were cameras, they would have been at this feast, they would have been watching as Jesus made this statement. So Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, he understood exactly why he was saying it, and he understood exactly where he was when he was making this statement. So when you read this statement in John 8, 12, you need to go all the way back to John 7. And read from John 7 through John chapter 8 because they are the same incident. Okay, so back on to what we're dealing with this morning. Three things that we learn about Jesus in this one statement. Three things we learn about Christ. Number one, his claim to be God was an exclusive claim. His claim to be God was an exclusive claim. What do I mean? If I'm going to exclude something, let's say I'm going to exclude one of these flags. What am I doing with it? I'm leaving it out. 
I'm pushing it to the side and I'm saying it doesn't belong with the others. So when Jesus says he is the light of the world, here's what he's doing. He's excluding all other possibilities that we might read into this statement and think this is what he meant. This is what he was saying. Here's how we can spin it or twist it. He was excluding every other possibility except the fact that he really was God. And notice this. He says, I am the light. Not a light. Not one of many sources of spiritual light. So if we make a claim like this, that Jesus was God in the flesh, and there is no other God but Him, and if you worship anything or anyone else other than Him, is that a very popular idea for us to put out there today in the PC culture we live in? No, because it's exclusive. It's not what? Tolerant. It's not tolerant. Do you think it was popular back then? No. Jesus shows up in the flesh and tells them, I'm God, I'm here, the kingdom of earth is at hand, and you need to respond appropriately. And and they look around and go, isn't this the carpenter's son? And where did he come from? Hasn't he spent 30 years just hammering nails and doing things like that? Who is this guy? Remember what C.S. Lewis said. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so he meant what he said. And he said exactly what he meant. I love John Piper's commentary on this. Piper says, chapter 8, verse 12 is a life-changing verse. If you see it for what it is, if you see him for who he is, it says that following Jesus is more than tagging along behind him. It means following him for who he is and being so taken with Christ that you join yourself to him. When I read Piper's quote, you know the first thing I thought about? Rocky II. We have any Rocky movie picture fans? Anybody? Four of us? Five? Okay, all right. In Rocky II, all of you remember the famous scene, I'm sure, where he's training to fight Apollo Creed for the second time. And as he goes out on the road, he puts on the gray sweats, you know, kind of with the neck cut out. and makes him look sort of a little more buff. And he throws on the Converse All-Star Chuck Taylors, the black pair. And he's running through the street, you know. And uh, I I had a couple pairs of those. And some of you are like, man, I remember those things. Yeah, they were great. So he's running through the streets with these Chuck Taylors on. And out comes a kid. And out comes a teenager. And out comes some working person from their job. And all of a sudden, it's like Philadelphia gets in behind this guy, and they're supporting him. This is their hometown hero, and they're going to follow him all the way to the end. And so they follow him up the steps to that museum, and they're dancing around. The music's playing, and we're all kind of in our living room doing the same thing, and we don't tell anybody about it. But when Piper talks about following Christ, that's exactly what I picture. But listen, nobody gave Rocky a second look before that first fight, did they? What did he say he was afraid of becoming? Just another bum from the neighborhood. That's how everyone treated him before, was just another bum from the neighborhood. But then when he hit the spotlight, everybody wanted a piece of him. But if you go all the way through the series, there's only a few that would go the distance with Rocky. Mick was one of those, ended up dying in number three, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, it's come out in the late 70s, early 80s. You should have seen it by now. But Mick goes with him, and Adrian goes with him, and then Apollo's own trainer after Apollo's death, spoiler alert number two, goes with him. All these, these people leave him, but these four or five people go with him to the end, and that was it. What happened to the city? 
Nobody else was willing to go with him to the bitter end. And what happened to Jesus? The exact same thing. When he starts making these outlandish claims about, I'm the bread of life, and I'm the light of the world, and I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the gate, and I'm this, and I'm that, these claims came, I mean, they absolutely were exclusive. And they drew a line in the sand, and you're either with him, or you're against him. Jesus' claims are so exclusive. Listen, they either reeled you in, or they ran you off. Nobody hung out in the middle. You remember the rich young ruler? What did he want to do? Kind of hang out in the middle of his religiosity and and Jesus. And Jesus said, no, it's not going to be that way. And if you think about it, it was the most loving thing that Jesus could have done to tell them who he was. If he really was God, would it be loving for him to conceal his identity to a lost and broken world? Would it be loving for him just to keep himself wrapped up and say, you know, I don't want to go through the trouble of being put on the cross. I don't want to be spat at. I don't want to be called names. I'm not going to get involved. Not at all. The most loving thing he could do was come to them and say, this is who I am. This is how you have to respond. What if we're down at the pool one day and there's a a person that falls into the deep end and begins to drown? And there's a lifeguard there undercover. Okay, undercover, not in a a swimsuit preparing to save lives, not even on the clock, but they're just wrapped up in their undercover standing around. Are they going to say, I'm not going to tell anybody who I am. I'm just going to let this person sink and drown. No, of course not. They're going to do whatever they can to get in there and save that individual's life. And that's what Jesus does. The most loving thing he could do was tell them who he was. Secondly, Jesus chose light, I believe, because light is connected to life. And what did Jesus say he came to give us? Life. John 10.10. I have come that you may what? Have life and have it more abundantly. So Jesus gives us his purpose. I've left the throne room of heaven and left the presence of my Father to come down to this lost, broken, dark, sinking world and tell you who I am and call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. John Piper again says the life Jesus has, the life he shares with those who follow him gives them light. That is, we are dead and we are blind until the life of Jesus is imparted to us by God's Spirit. And then we see the eyes of our hearts are opened and then we have the light of life. John 1.4 says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. And what John is telling us is this real source of spiritual light never burns out. When a light bulb goes out in your house, what do you have to do? Change it, replace it. I was waiting on it. Okay. Or we can, I guess, just sit in the dark. And Jesus is saying, I came to replace all the other broken lights that you were trying to put in your life and show you I'm the real source of spiritual light. And listen, you don't have to replace me. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And if you receive me, I give all of myself to you for all eternity. I am yours. Free of charge. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. And so the question is, why would people walk around in darkness like Nathan talked about, stumbling around in darkness, when all they have to do is open up and receive the light of the world? The Bible tells us, because men loved darkness more than they loved the light. 
when a person opens their heart to Christ, that light floods in. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. The old, what happened to the old? They got taken out with the trash. It's gone. But the new has come. The old and new don't mingle. I mean, how many of you take your trash bag out and you dump part of your old trash in there with your new bag and you think, I'm just going to mingle the two. That's going to work out really well. Nobody. What do we do with the trash? We get it out. We tie it up. We take it out. You know what happens when we open our hearts to the light of the world? He takes out the trash. The darkness is gone. He beats back the darkness. Does darkness ever, ever, ever triumph over light? No. It doesn't matter how dark it is. I was in a cave spelunking one time. That's a a fancy word for caving. We were walking through a cave. We were spelunking, and we had headlamps. And the guy says, turn your lamps off. We turn off our lamps. And he begins to talk to us, and his voice is echoing. So I don't know where he's at. I don't know if he's moving. I don't know if he's behind me. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. And he takes a little match. And that one match lights up that entire cavern that we're standing in. Because darkness cannot triumph over light. It's the way God designed it. There was a young lady that Carrie and I knew in college. And she lived a very dark life. And she had been an escort girl. She had gotten pregnant and had an abortion. She had run away from home. Everything in her life had collapsed around her. And when all of the darkness swallowed her up, you know what she did? She came to the light of Christ. And she said yes to Jesus. And she invited Jesus into her life. And she shared her story with these young ladies at Campus Crusade for Christ. Just the ladies. Because it was such a sensitive story. And if you talk to someone like that, who has walked in the darkness, man, there is nothing better than the light. And that's what Jesus is offering to anyone who will turn on the light and say yes to Christ. Number three, we'll move quickly. When we follow Christ, listen to this, this is so good. When we follow Christ, we have him for ourselves. Look at verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's the promise of a possession of a relationship. That means you can be secure in your relationship with Jesus. You don't have to wonder from day to day, does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he? It doesn't work like that. We don't even hold on to Jesus. Jesus holds on to us. Read the Gospels. When he grabs a hold of you and you say yes to him, his arms are strong and sufficient enough to hold on because we are weak, but he is what? Strong. So he says you'll never have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light. You know how I picture this? When I come home and, and one of my kids, one of my little ones, wants to wrestle with me. Okay, I'm not a very big fella. Okay, but I hope at this point I can still take an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old and a 2-year-old and a 9-month-old. Okay? And if, they, if I come home and they say, hey, I want to uh, wrestle with you, Dad. Okay, all right. Who's going to win 10 times out of 10? Me, right? Unless I allow myself to be apprehended. Unless I allow myself to be wrestled with and rolled over under the floor and pinned in this show of love and simple humility and submission. And that's how I picture what Jesus did for us. 
that father can always win, can always trump that toddler. But what happens to that, the heart of that toddler when daddy says, okay, let's, let's wrestle. Oh, oh, you got me. Oh, oh, you're, you're pinning me. No, don't. That little toddler feels so much joy, so much peace, so much security because they have their daddy. That only happens because daddy humbles himself and makes himself available. John 1.14 says that Jesus became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know how much humility and condescension it had to have taken for God in, in, in the Son Christ to step down into the earth that he spoke into being and allow those created beings to nail him to a cross? Think about the humility that that had to have taken. See, Jesus allowed us to grab a hold of that relationship with the Father. Skip down to verse 30 real quick and we'll be finished in a moment. Verse 30. As he was saying these things, still at the Feast of Tabernacles, many did what? Believed in him. Some English translations say it like this. They put their faith in him. You know what the Greek means here? Watch me. They cast everything of themselves on to Jesus. There was nothing in which they were trying to sustain their own weight. They realized, I can't save myself. I'm not sufficient to do that. I've got to cast all of me on him. Jesus wants all or nothing. Go read the rich young ruler. But you know what some people want to do? Some people want to play the spiritual hokey pokey. Right? Put my left foot in, my right left foot out. My left foot in, you know, shake it all about. And they want to kind of go in and out with Jesus and in and out with Jesus. And I'm going to give him a little bit of me and then I'm going to take it back. And you can have this, but you can't have that. No, it doesn't work like that. He's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And he is the sovereign Lord of all. The question is, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we say yes to him? Here's what they did. Phillips says this about their belief. They made a soul-saving transfer of trust to Christ. Isn't that great language? A soul-saving transfer of trust to Christ Jesus. I pulled out my phone the other day, and this is amazing. You can do this now. You can log into your, your banking institution, and you can move money anywhere you want to. Any, I mean, I can be anywhere, and as long as I've got signal, and I can move money from one account to the other. And if I took that money and I moved it from one account to the other account, guess what? It's no longer where it was. I have transferred it completely to that new place, and I'm trusting in that new account to be sufficient to hold what I have put in it. You see where I'm going? Jesus is sufficient. He can be trusted with everything that we have. We ought to cast ourselves entirely on Him. So our first question that we asked earlier, how important is light? How vital is light to our physical and our spiritual existence? Let me tell you, it's only as good as its source. Think about that. If the source burns out, where's the light go? Gone. Light is only as good as its source because it always comes from its source. And how is Jesus the light of the world? Seven times in this passage he says, I'm from the Father. I'm going to the Father. I'm with the Father. I operate on the Father's authority. I do nothing on my own. He says, I am with the Father because I'm one with the Father. That's how he's the light of the world. He is the reflection of the glory of our Father in heaven. What did he say one of his disciples? If you've seen me, you've seen 
You've seen the Father. So here's what it comes to. No sun outside. No light. No life. No sun on this cross over here. No light of the world. No spiritual life. Listen, we can't fake it till we make it. We might can fake everybody else, in the, everybody else in this room, but we're not going to fool God when we stand before Him in eternity. It's not going to be where God looks down a list and checks off certain things and says, oh, you did this, this, and that. You're good. Come on in. It don't work like that. I read a story about a little village church in Russia where attendance had fallen off, and so the priest did something that we figured out around here works real good. He starts to hand out, this Russian priest starts to hand out candy. And I'll give you a guess as to what happened in the attendance of that little village church in Russia. It started to boom. All these kids came out of nowhere. It's like magic. So he hands out this candy. One of the most faithful kids to come to that church school was a pugnacious, quarrelsome little fella who could recite large passages of Scripture without a problem. And then he would take this candy, he would stick it in his pocket, and he'd run off to the field where he would selfishly munch on it and devour it. Well, the priest took a liking to this little boy. He thought, I kind of like him. I'm going to keep pouring into him. And so he said, listen, I want you to come to church school more often. And this little boy said, hey, that'll get me out of chores. That's a good deal for me. So mom and dad said, fine, you can go. And so he goes to church school. The priest taught him to memorize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by heart. Maybe we should say by head. He had them all memorized up here, and he won a special prize for memorizing them word for word. Sixty years later, he loved to still recite Scripture. But for some reason, it never made it from here down to here. You know what his name was? Nikita Khrushchev. The premier of the Russian people who wanted to do away with religion in favor of a communistic, atheistic society. Did he know the Gospels? Up here he did. All of them, word for word. And for 60 years, would recite those to himself. He knew them better than the genuine believers that he was ruling over and dominating. But he didn't have a relationship with Christ. There was no light in here. And light won't do us any good if we don't let it in. Will it? We can shut the blinds. We can close the doors. We can do whatever we want to to sit in the dark. But we have to say yes to Christ and open up to the light of the world. My question for you this morning is what will you do with Jesus and his statement where he says, I am the light of the world. If he's right, your response is the most important thing that you will ever do in your life. Will you let him in? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word that guides us, directs our paths, that serves as a light for us in dark places when we walk through. Father, I pray this morning over this statement that we just studied that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, that he is the light of the world, the light of life. I pray that you would press upon our hearts through your spirit how vital Jesus is to everyday life but so much more to our eternity. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would answer the question that I just asked. What will you do with the light? Will you say yes and come to the light and receive the light of the world, Christ Jesus, 
and make that soul-saving transfer of trust? Or will someone just say no and continue to prefer the darkness? Lord, I pray that they would hear the gospel. I pray that the gospel would press in upon their hearts and they would realize their response is the most important response they'll ever give to anything in their lives. I pray your spirit would work in your way and we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you will, go ahead and stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation as Emily comes to lead us.